0: Doing the impossible is not something you make happen. It's something that you allow to happen. After conducting over 10,000 personal and group coaching sessions over the last decade, author and personal coach Jason Dries has unlocked the simple yet effective formula to accept and create success in your life on the most basic, instinctive level. In his latest book, Do the Impossible, Jason gives readers access to the same life-changing principles he provides in his personal coaching sessions. Ready to embrace success as a state of being? In this exclusive listener offer, get your copy of Do the Impossible for 50% off from the publishers at Bigger Pockets. To get your copy of Do the Impossible for 50% off any format, go to www.biggerpockets.com impossible50. That's 50% off any format, www.biggerpockets.com impossible50.
1: I like to say the MBA is, is, a, is a global marketing and public relations firm disguised as a league amen i mean that's what they do well they market and promote their players and as a result i can go all over the world you know i had my michael jackson moment back in the 90s in manila the philippines and literally thousands of people waiting at my hotel and all because of my association with that brand with the nba
0: Welcome to On Brand with Donnie Deutsch. Uh, I am Donny Deutsch, and this is the show On Brand that is built on a simple premise that everything and everybody is a brand. Every celebrity, every athlete, every company, every institution, all brands. We do two things here. We interview a big personality about their own personal brand today. It's one of the great NBA players of all time, Grant Hill, who is, of course, uh, one of the top announcers now. Brilliant guy, brilliant player uh really thoughtful we're gonna have a lot of fun with grand hill and if you if you have any interest in basketball or sports or just anything really he's he's just a great guy to listen to and we do what we call our brands of the week and these are the brands that are kind of driving the zeitgeist who's up who's down and who's kind of making things go so let's get right into our brands of the week first one brand down huge brand down for truth social this is trump's uh twitter 2.0 since he got thrown off of twitter and, you know, where he posts all his tweets or whatever you call them on Truth Social. And it's basically crumbling. No surprise here. You know, we, we've documented many times that his businesses, Trump's businesses that have failed. And this is going to be the newest one. Six months after his high profile launch, basically it's facing major financial challenges as traffic remains puny. The company that is scheduled to acquire it expresses fear that its legal troubles could lead to a decline in its popularity. Stock prices plunged 75% since its March peak. You reported a filing last week it lost six and a half million in the first half of the year. Its financial base has started to crumble uh, on and on and on. This thing is a disaster, like just about everything else that Donald Trump touches. Brand down for the state of Texas. There you go. This is is a really nice one. Texans who perform abortions now face up to life in prison. $100,000 fine. Performing an abortion is now obviously a felony punishable by up to life in prison. After its trigger laws, there you go. The statute also says the attorney general shall seek a civil penalty of not less than one hundred thousand dollars. So, if you're somebody that's performing an abortion, say somebody, let's say a thirteen year old girl is raped by her uncle, and they come to you and you perform an abortion to help this poor little girl, you could go to jail for life. And just like Louisiana, let's also get their brand down. This is, an, this is another thing where the you know this Roe v. Wade, the 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 collateral damage of the overturning of it, a woman carrying a fetus without a skull had to go to another state because she couldn't get an abortion in Louisiana. She was divided, The birth defect, the, the baby would not survive. So baby, she found out 10 weeks into her pregnancy that the unborn child had a condition called a crania, where the fetus skull does not form from inside the womb. Said the baby was a lethal condition, was not survived for this past week, but she had to carry her baby till the end to bury the baby. And they, they, they she couldn't get an abortion under these circumstances. So there you go, Louisiana. There you go, Texas. Brand out for Joe Manchin. The least popular figure of all politicians, Joe Manchin is the least popular figure in the new national poll, which just 11% of registered voters said they have positive feelings about the West Virginia Democrat. None of the figures in the groups had net positive ratings. So no politician had a net net positive. But out of the rest of them, Liz Cheney was only six points underwater, 28%, 34% negative. Joe Biden, eight points underwater. Donald Trump, 18 points. Kamala Harris, 18 points. Mike Pence, 19 points. And Joe Manchin was 23 points underwater, 11% positive, 34% negative. So you could see why he's getting shit from both sides. You could see why Democrats don't like him. And you can see why Republicans don't like him. Brand down for Supreme Court, no surprise here. Guess what? Oh, wow. Public opinion of the Supreme Court plummets after the abortion decision. Wow, what a shocker. In a recent reversal from the poll in 2019, when 39% said they had high confidence, while 37% had low confidence, well, that's pretty much changed. That basically now... Combined 37% of voters, so they have very little or no confidence, nation's highest court versus 27% who have great or little confidence. So basically 10% underwater versus being 22% above water in polling. And this is it. We have a democracy now, but we have a Supreme Court that is not working on behalf of where this country is, whether it's certain gun laws that 80% believe in, Roe v. Wade, 60%. They are not enforcing the will of the people, and that's why they are Really tumbling in the polls. No surprise there. Brand down for watching the news. This is not good for people like me who talk about the news and are on TV doing the news. Obsessively watching news can make you mentally and physically sick. Study finds. Researchers at Texas Tech University found that Americans who obsessively follow the news are more likely to suffer from both physical and mental health problems, including anxiety and stress. No shocker. I mean, I never turn on the news at night. You know, I never watch. I watch MSNBC in the mornings when I'm not on. I watch it late afternoon, my friend Nicole. But I don't watch the news because it stresses me out. And I go to sleep all stressed out. I don't mind being a little stressed. (laughs) So that's not surprising. Somebody who's checking the news every few minutes and just constantly being bombarded with what's going on. It's not good for your mental health. That doesn't mean we shouldn't watch the news, but there's no surprise there. Brand. We'll see for NBC. NBC considers cutting back programming hours in primetime. They're basically, NBC has announced that they're looking at, not necessarily going to do, that losing their primetime at 10 o'clock, no longer running shows like Law and & Order and the things that run at 10 o'clock and giving it back to the local affiliates. So your local news would start at 10 o'clock and go to 11. And I guess Jimmy Fallon would start at 10.30 or 11. They see more money in going to the local affiliates than producing these expensive you know hours and selling them primetime. Very interesting. And brand up for Meghan Markle. She dethrones Joe Rogan is the top of Spotify's US podcast chart. Meghan Markle's new podcast, Archetypes, has soared to number one in Spotify's podcast charts, taking the top spot from number one longtime title, Joe Rogan's experience. It's outperformed everything. But what is it about? I don't know. I should know this if I'm talking about that it's a brand up, but I just do know, I know it's doing really, really well. Brand now for Apple. The feds are thinking about an antitrust case against Apple. Department of Justice is in the early stages of drafting an antitrust case against Apple, alleging the company abuses market power to stifle small tech companies, including app developers and competing hardware makers. It would be the first such case against Apple by a U.S. federal agency, although European antitrust regulators have very similar cases over the company's app store fees and iPhone's treatment of tap-to-pay technology. So we're going to watch that. Brand down for electricity. Well, not brand down. We need electricity, so never brand down. Brand down for people's ability to pay for electricity. More Americans than ever can't afford to pay their electric bill. U.S. electricity prices are surging and more people than ever are struggling to pay. a Power company, more than 20 million American households have fallen behind on the utility bills. That's pretty scary stuff. Here's interesting, really big news. Brand up for electric vehicles. California bans all new gas-powered car sales by 2035. So a mere 13 years from now, You will not be able to buy a gas-powered car in California. California would be all electric vehicles. That's incredible how fast and how far we'll come with electric vehicles. That in just over a decade, you will not be able to buy a gas-powered car in California, and the rest of the country will follow. And that's where we're going. Brand up there. Brand up for Mickey Mantle. The Mick. One of the great players of all time. A Mickey Mantle baseball card broke a record. Sold for $12.6 million on Sunday. That's a 1952 perfect condition mantle rookie baseball card, $12.5 million. We all should have saved our baseball cards. There you go. But that's a big brand up to Mickey Mantle and to Collection also. Brand up for Serena Williams. We got to give it to her. She's on a retirement tour. I'm not sure when this, by the time this runs, will she have won or not. This podcast is breaking a few days after her first match. So hopefully she's still playing while while you're listening to this. But what I love, the one little nugget I'm going to give about, she says that she listens to Maniac from Flashdance to pump up before her matches. he's a maniac, maniac. I, it's the first time I've ever sung on the show. But they're interesting. A little Serena Williams fact, but what, a, what, a, what an amazing run. What probably, I would argue, the greatest woman athlete of all time, one of the great athletes of all time. You'd have to put up in there, I think, top, top five athletes of all time, along with... Michael Jordan and, and Muhammad Ali and, and, and Tom Brady. I, everybody's going to have their different picks, but she certainly belongs in that discussion and has been a class act the whole way through. So brand up to Serena Williams and brand up to the song Maniac from Flashdance. Brand up for Britney Spears. Really, the big brand up is for Elton John because Britney Spears has her first number one since 2011 with the Tiny Dancer remix that she did. It's putting her right back at number one. At midnight, Sir Elton dropped his remix of Tiny Dancer. It's called Hold Me Closer at number one on iTunes. So I just love when they bring back, you know, and so a whole new generation will be listening to Tiny Dancer and Rocket Man, maybe not even knowing that there was something that came before, but it's resurrecting Britney Spears. So you got to love it. Got to love Britney. Huge brand up for Curb Your Enthusiasm. I am a monster Larry David fan. It's being renewed for 12th season by HBO, longer than Seinfeld ran. Just brilliant. Just, just great TV. Brilliant guy. I have to say he's one of my five top entertainers of all time anywhere. I just I just love Larry David. I uh, had the pleasure of bumping into him once. And actually, he was very complimentary. He goes, yeah, for, I, I catch you Fridays on Morning Joe. I'm always watching Fridays. I love that. That made my day. Brand up for Fletch. Remember the movie Fletch with Chevy Chase? Well, they're doing a remake. And John Hamm, who I love, who I, who I think is a great actor, obviously from Mad Men fame and uh, recently in Maverick Top Gun, will be playing Fletch. And we got got to love Fletch to. I'm going to be lining up to see that one. Brand up for the Miss England finalist named Melissa Ralph. I think that's the way I pronounce it, R-A-O-U-F. She's the first in the pageant's history to compete without makeup. There you go. We'll see how that goes for it, but got to love that. Got to give it that one. Brand up for Better For You Alcohol. This new trending alcohol, this is really smart stuff, which are basic spirits with vitamins, minerals, and other seemingly healthful qualities. So while you're getting drunk, you could be maybe helping your health. I know that sounds like a, kind of an oxymoron. But uh, some of the examples are VISI, a hard salsa from Melson & Coors that contains angst, and vitamin C from Superfruit. Hard kombucha is a trending category. Though nutritionists say its probiotic benefits are dubious. Slapjack, a vodka made from jackfruit, causes key ingredient, a fascinating fruit loaded with superpowers. So this is smart stuff. By the way, just like you tried to get healthier beer, why not healthier hard alcohol? And finally, and I always like to end on a high note, Oscar Mayer, brand up, huge brand up for frozen wiener pops. Oscar Mayer announces hot dog flavored popsicles, first ever cold dog, hot, I'm gonna let that sit with you for a, hot dog flavored popsicles. I am in. That's all I can say about that. And those are our brands of the week. Now let's get to our interview with the great Grant Hill. I am thrilled with today's guest. This introduction is going to be a long one because he's got a lot going on. Uh, Grant Hill, his new book, Game and Autobiography, is a bestseller. He is a seven-time NBA All-Star, a five-time All-NBAer, NBA NBA Hall of Fame member, two-time NCAA champion, head of men's uh, bas- USA Basketball, part owner the Atlanta Hawks, businessman. Have I forgotten anything? I mean, there's there's a lot to get through with you, my friend.
1: <laughs> no, you're good. You're good, Donnie. I appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Thanks for being here. We were just talking all offline, and um, I, we, I first got a chance and a pleasure meeting you in my old CNBC show 15 years ago, uh, and you've done so much. First of all, before we get to the biography, how is it being in a, an NBA owner? I mean, that's just got to be nothing more if I know you're part of Tony Ressler's group, the Hawks. Really great up-and-coming team. That's just got to be the best. To me, that would be my ultimate dream.
1: You know, it is. It it is incredible. And Tony is a great managing partner, a great great friend. To be in position of ownership, uh, to have that responsibility, uh, it's fun. It's nerve-wracking. It's hard. It's a hard business. It's a hard business to to win a championship. Uh, But when you're with good people, it's it's fantastic. And we're in a great market, as you said, up-and-coming. You know, historically, we, we've had a chance to come in and really add value. And thankfully, Tony and his leadership and vision uh, and commitment, you know, we've been able to sort of build our infrastructure uh, and, and really build an emotional connection with our fans and our audience. Uh, and it certainly helps when you have a good young player in Trey Young who yeah. has a lot of runway in front of him. So. Yeah. Certainly a lot of fun.
0: It is really you what know, the NBA and, and you're a prime example of that why the NBA, I think, has been so successful in marketing, I think more so than any other league. They've understood it's a star system. They've understood it's always a handful of players uh, that make the sport. It's not the uniform. It's the players. Uh, and, you know, you were one of those players in your heyday. And as you said, Trey Young is one of those guys today. We go team by team with John Morant. I mean, there's just a great young crop of NBA guys right now. I can't remember in my lifetime as kind of a – that it's such, such an appealing young group of guys today. Anthony Edwards, I mean, you go, we can go team for team, but there's just a great young crop. The, I think the future of the league is brighter than it's ever been.
1: You know, I agree. Um, you know, I think that the one thing we've learned historically is that the league constantly replenishes itself and its talent. And you think about LeBron James, and obviously uh, he's had an incredible career, still playing, uh, has been sort of the face of the playoffs and of the finals for many, many years, at least the last decade. Sure. Uh, and this past year, he he was not in the playoffs. His team, the Lakers, were unfortunate they didn't make the playoffs. And it still was exciting. There still was, obviously, Golden State, Stephen Curry getting back to form. But the emergence of these young guys, Trey Young and his run last year, Anthony Edwards, Ja Morant, uh, the, the league is in good shape. Uh, the future of the league is exciting. Uh, and you said it best the nba i like to say the nba is is a is a global marketing and public relations firm disguised as a league amen i mean that's what they do well they market and promote their players and as a result i can go all over the world you know i had my michael jackson moment back in the 90s in manila the philippines and literally thousands of people waiting at my hotel And all because of my association with that brand, with the NBA, and the incredible work that David Stern did back in the 90s. And Adam Silver uh, has continued with that legacy. So it is definitely all about marketing, and the future is bright, and I'm excited to be a part of it.
0: The other thing I didn't mention in your introduction, we'll get to it later, is you are uh, part of the league announcing team for the uh, NCAA tournament, which is just the the I, I think the most exciting sporting event there is, and I'm a, I'm a sports junkie, we can go across, but I think that that NCAA tourney over the years has evolved to, uh, it, it's my favorite two weeks in sports.
1: You know, it, it is a magical time. There's just a great energy. There's a spirit with the NCAA tournament that really, I think, captures everyone. Everyone's captivated by it. Regardless if you're a basketball fan or not, you're filling out the brackets, you're watching... There's upsets, there's buzzer beaters. Uh, It is a magical time of the year. And, you know, I grew up, I I was a fan of basketball. I became a fan of basketball watching the Final Four and watching the tournament. And and seeing that as a kid and dreaming about, oh, one day I'd love to be a part of that. And then I was fortunate to be a part of it and to win championships. And now, you know, in middle age, which is hard for me to say, (laughs) but now in middle age, you know, now I'm, I'm, I get a chance to, to, to call the game and work with Jim Nance and Bill Raftery. You know, don't tell anybody, uh, Donnie, but I, I would do it for free. Oh, I, yeah. But they actually paid me to do it. <laughs> it's like, incredible, it's, it's isn't like, it? Is it incredible? It's incredible, but it is fun. And, I, and I, it's the, the best three weeks uh, of the year, no question. Let's
0: get into the book. Uh, you talk about your childhood a lot, your only child with two only child parents. And you said there was some real loneliness attached to that.
1: Yeah, there was, you know, um, I, you know, being an only child, not having siblings, not having cousins, <laughs> not having a big family. Uh, and, and then, you know, I think being somewhat of a, of a, of an introvert, uh, and then somewhat, you know, awkward, socially awkward and, um, you know, going through that and, and talking about that in the book. And, uh, I, I think all kids, middle school is always an awkward period of time for, for, for adolescents, but, Uh, You're trying to find who you are and discover who you are. And in the book, I'm able to sort of walk the reader through that and talk about the role that basketball played and sort of finding my tribe, uh, finding my identity, finding that thing that helps to validate and also give confidence along the way. And so uh, being very forthcoming, being slightly vulnerable but talking about that loneliness uh, that, that was there, you know, during my formative years.
0: When do you, when was there a certain point that you realized, wow, this is, my destiny could lead to some pretty serious places in the world of basketball. Was there a particular game, a particular moment, particular age that you said, you know, Jesus, I could go, to, end up going to a school like Duke. I could end up playing for an NBA team. I mean, do you remember that moment?
1: Yeah, you know, it, it, I, I think for me, you know, I played varsity as a freshman, and I started. Uh, and then I came back my sophomore they called year. They you,
0: called you fetus because you were so young, right? I mean, playing yeah, for varsity. I was,
1: <laughs> that's right. I, I was 13 when I started high school. I was 17 when I started college. So, you know, I, I was pretty young. And, um, and, and so, you know, I think after my first year, I came back that second year, and I was pretty dominant. You know, I, I went from averaging maybe 10 points a game to now, you know, 22 points a game uh, and, and really kind of ascended to a whole nother level. And at that point, I was like, OK, you know, I'm playing against guys who are older, who have committed to go on and play at big time uh, college programs. So now I felt like, OK, I, I have a chance here to not just go to college, but maybe be pretty special. And, and, and that was when it kind of hit me. Um, you know, I, I lacked a little confidence and, and maybe it should have hit me earlier. <laughs> you know, because yeah. I had some success on the, on the national stage for my age group going back to when I was like 13, four, uh, 12 years old. Uh, but it really hit me my sophomore year. And I wasn't thinking about the NBA. That was the last thing on my mind. But it was like, man, I might have a chance to play in the ACC uh, or the Big East, which were the, you know, the premier yeah. conferences back then for basketball.
0: They, your, your, I think it was your mom wanted you to go to Georgetown, your dad wanted you to go to North Carolina, and then a guy named Mike Shashevsky showed up at your house.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, you know, it, and it all worked out for the best. But, you know, my, my dad was a huge Dean Smith fan, you know, not, not just for the teams and their success, but, but for what he did and what he stood for off the court. And then, you know, my mom and I, we would go to Georgetown games. So we had season tickets, and that was our, you know, that was what we did for fun. We would go around the Beltway in D.C. to Landover and, and watch Georgetown. So, um, you know, those were the two programs that that my parents were, were fans of, and I was as well. But Coach K, you know, I, he he was emerging. Uh, he started recruiting me, recruiting me hard. And, you know, his, part of his genius is really uh, his leadership, but getting people to buy in. And his vision for the program, how I fa- fit into that, his vision for me, uh, I was sold. And, uh, and Duke, during that time, during my high school years, was emerging. Had gotten to the Final Four, gotten to the championship game, just couldn't get over the hump. Uh, but it felt right. And it, he felt right. And um, I'm amazed that at 16, I could make that decision that would have a huge impact on my career and on my life and uh, to be 16 and, and to be that mature. I mean, I'm surprised that my 16 year old self did that, but, <laughs> but coach K was, was incredible and is, is, obviously going on and had an incredible career.
0: You talked about when he was in your living room that he felt like he was coaching you already. It wasn't even recruiting me. I and mean, he he took out, started showing some films, started talk, talking about breaking your game down. And that, that must've been a special moment.
1: It was, it was intense. And, and there was a, a his ability to connect, you know, his ability to come in and make that connection with me, and he's done that throughout his entire career, whether recruiting, whether coaching, even with the Olympics and Team USA. Um, but that was a powerful moment, and it gave me a sense of like, okay, you know, just it resonated. I, I don't, I don't know how to say it better. And it, and it resonated for four years, and you know, Donnie, it still resonates to this day. I still call him Coach. Yeah. I still get great advice. Uh, I joke with him. I say to him, you know, I feel like when I'm in your presence, I'm 18 and I'm in trouble. <laughs> um, but you know, you just have so much respect and reverence for him, uh, and he's always the he's always my coach, and, and that hasn't changed since I was 16 years old in my in my kid or in our, in our family room when he started coaching me. Then he's never stopped.
0: I was surprised to learn uh, you talk about uh, the relationship between Hurley and and Leitner, That like Leitner was like br- brutal to Hurley. You seemed you watched him and go these guys are best friends. You know, they seem like frickin' frack. And like that that Leitner really, really, really would just belittle him and, and rank on him. And I was
1: surprised to read that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Leitner was you know Leitner was tough. <laughs> he was tough on all of us, but definitely Bobby. I'll say this though, in, in fairness to Bobby. I mean, Bobby was incredibly tough. And, you know, from Jersey City, his dad was an incredible sure. coach. If Bobby didn't have the mental and emotional uh, toughness to endure that and, and to, you know, then we don't we don't have success. So it, it speaks to to Leitner a little bit in terms of his ways and his methods, which sometimes were were, we're borderline over the top, but it also speaks to Bobby and just how incredibly strong he was in his will and that didn't affect him it didn't bother him uh he was able to go out and be great but you know we were young we were juvenile and uh at times we won in spite uh, of of our ways
0: you i would have to say that you were the flip side of of Leitner, you were one of the most well, you've always been one of the most well-liked athletes. You you, you know, it just, it, it, from the beginning, from you showing up as a freshman at Duke all through your career in every iteration, why was Leitner so disliked? I mean, the, the public didn't understand what was going on behind the scenes, but that guy would just show up and you just wanted to smack him. What was it about him? <laughs> what was it about Leitner? I mean, he look, he became very self-aware. Obviously, the ESPN even did a whole doc
1: on it. But what was it about that guy? Well, first of all, he was really good. And and he was dominant. And and there was an and an, you know, I think every athlete has I like to call it an athletic arrogance. You know, I had it. You yeah. have a feeling and a you belief to, that yeah. you're the best player. But he 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 exuded that arrogance. He exuded confidence. And and at times, you know, look at times he got on our nerves, you know, as we yeah. talked about with, with Bobby. But I think he was good. I think he wore it. I think he he played the role like he played the role of the I like to call it like a WWF villain. Villain, yeah. And and he and he did it with pride. And 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 for him he needed to he needed to be on that sort of frequency or, or that that's, level that's of vibration got him going, yeah. to be good, to be great. Like he had to wear it, he had to exude it, he had to show it. And ironically, I thought when he got to the NBA, he got away from that And but when he was in college, part of his genius, part of his brilliance was his confidence, his swagger, uh, his attitude. And that made him great. And we fed off of that. So uh, and it also deflected us from all of the hate and vitriol. He took all that on. Yeah. It almost deflected it. And so in spite of what's been read and said and even what I wrote about, like I really I enjoyed playing with him like he was an intense competitor. He was like my biggest cheerleader. He wanted to see me like do well and dominate. Like he was just a great, great teammate who sometimes would cross the line and sometimes make it difficult for even his own teammates. I got, you've probably at every dinner
0: party you've been through your entire life, you've had to replay this play, the play, but I, I got to ask you about it. Your you know, Duke-Kentucky game probably goes down as the greatest college basketball game, if not one of the, certainly the greatest. You throw a, court, a full-length court pass. What, take me inside your mind as that play is enveloped? Was that a play that was called? Was that you just chucked? I mean, what take me to the moment. You stand in the baseline. Patino, for whatever reason, decides not to put somebody in front of you, and that's been second-guessed ever since then. And, and take me back to that play.
1: Yeah, no, just an incredible moment. Uh, first of all, we, we never practiced that particular play, but we would practice everyday baseball passes. And we really? did it every day as part of our warm-up, we would do these two man drills and uh, we would, we would end them with baseball passes to your partner. Uh, So that pass was worked on. It wasn't something that, you know, I'd never done before, never done it in a game, Mm -hmm. but had done it in practice every day. And that moment, I mean, it really, it speaks to a lot of things that happened. I thought were incredible. First of all, coach K, you know, we, we, we were in this tough game. Sean Woods from Kentucky hits that shot with 2.1 seconds left and he calls a timeout, and Coach K meets us out on the floor. So he comes to us as we're coming to the bench. And his body language, his demeanor, and what he said was almost like he, he was there to give us strength and give us confidence. And, you know, it was pretty simple what he said. He asked me, Grant, can you make the pass? And I said, I can make the pass. And so in that situation, he didn't tell me. Well, he didn't say, Grant, you do this. He asked me. And I said, yes, I can make the pass. And so almost in a way, I'm taking ownership for what I have to do. And I'm saying it, the group is hearing it. And there's something powerful about that. Uh, And then he, of course, asked Christian, can you make the shot? And Christian, who hadn't missed a shot the whole game, said, if Grant makes the pass, I'll make Mm -hmm. the shot. And so now I'm like, well, now I'm a little nervous, you know, because yeah. now I got to come through. But it, it was just, a, a, I think, a brilliant display of leadership and him asking us as opposed to telling us. And when I left that huddle, I felt like we were going to win. I felt like, you know, I went from the feeling of dejection, feeling that, oh, man, this is this season is over, to now feeling like we're going to win. And thankfully... Uh, as you said, Patino had nobody on the ball and I was able to deliver a, a great pass and Christian caught it and, and made a move and and hit, you know, an iconic shot that still resonates 30 years later. Um, but it, it was just to be a part of that, to think I was 19. We were kids. We were caught in the moment. I still get nervous when I see the highlights. Like I still <laughs> my hands get nervous you know, knowing the result, but it was just a magical moment and I'm grateful to have been a part of
0: it. That's amazing that Krzyzewski didn't say, okay, make the pass, can you make the pass and gave you the ownership that way. I mean, that, that that's just that's a really inspiring, inspiring anecdote. So let, let's talk NBA. You basically had two careers in the NBA. Uh, you had yep. pre-ankle injury, post-ankle injury. You have talked a lot about that and how the injuries has defined you uh, and has been a big part of your life. Uh, most people don't even know I was fascinated in the book that you almost died from your ankle injury. You you want to take us to that story. You're recouping uh, and take us into the living room when all of a sudden your wife walks in and you've got 104 fever.
1: Yeah, no, it was a scary moment. And, you know, I'd had a number of surgeries. Uh, I think that was my fourth ankle surgery in three years. So at that point, you kind of understand the, the whole process. You understand the procedure, the recovery, uh, and so on. And so, um, I was about four days removed and my body started to react in a weird way. And my temperature was spiking. My body was shaking. I was kind of going through what felt like, or at least what I would assume was a a form of shock, if you will. And my, my wife rushed me to the hospital and lo and behold, I was, you know, sepsis. I, I, I was, you know, I was close to dying. And, um, I remember my body, my arms, my, 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 legs were shaking uncontrollably. Uh, I got to the hospital and, um, the reaction from the doctors and the nurses scared me even more. And, you know, they wheeled me into intensive care and they had all these people around me. They were trying to strap my arms down and get an IV into me. And when they cut off my cast from my knee down to my ankle, it was black and red. And, um, and so they, they you know, assumed right then in this moment, there was some sort of infection. And so, you know, it turns out it was a staph infection and there was a hole in my ankle. Uh, as a result, the incision opened up. Uh, and I don't know if the incision opened because of the staph infection or the infection caused the incision to open. Right. But, um, and so nevertheless, I ended up getting a skin flap surgery where they took, uh, skin and, 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 and I guess some veins uh, from my arm and sort of used it to cover up the hole in my ankle. And, you know, the doctor said, you know, and I didn't know this at the time. I mean, he told me this after the fact, but he said, look, if this surgery didn't work, then the, the only alternative was amputation. And, um, and so it was a very scary moment and it was something that you know, going through the whole ordeal and the ankle and missing time and and even that surgery and that procedure, there was there was some shame, there was some a feeling of embarrassment. like I didn't want people to see it. Um, it, it was some weird emotional uh, attachment to it all. But you're right. like I, I got to a point where I'm comfortable and I wanted to share that experience. but also it it, it kind of defined me. It kind of defined me publicly, but also personally. But that was a really dark moment. Um, I went to Duke to see a, a reconstructive surgeon, not knowing that I would need surgery. And I ended up being there for six weeks and I was in the hospital for about three weeks. And I remember as I'm recovering, I'm thinking like, wow, like I almost died because of this. Like, like I don't want to play anymore. Like, you know, if, if my love and desire to get on the court and play is going to get me to this point where I'm almost dying and I'm I'm septic and, and all of it, like, it's not worth it. I just, my oldest daughter was just born. And um, and so, you know, taking you through that and, you know, sort of the, the mental and emotional and also the physical toll that injuries and surgeries, and in my case, uh, the mismanagement of, of all of that, uh, that was tough. But I don't think people, I think people obviously knew I went through injuries and had ink, but I don't think yeah. they understood how severe it was and just how crazy that whole ordeal was over those four years.
0: You would led a charmed life. Uh, I mean, by any standard, up, up, you know. And your first six seasons in the NBA, you're averaging 22 points, think seven boards, six assists. I mean, putting up crazy numbers. And the first time you get injured, I always wonder, because I'm a fan, and I watch, and I see, and I see the 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 pain. The the pain. I don't even mean the physical pain. The the when somebody realizes, oh my God, I might be losing a year of my career, or this might, I might never be this good again. How do you, because this is, we all go through those moments in life. Yours are more pronounced and more public and, and, and so acute. How do you kind of get over, how do you rally yourself when you go, fuck, I, I'm going to take, this is going to be six months of therapy. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to play again. I don't know if I'm going to be this good again. And what, what, what's the mode? what's the tools you use to get yourself over that hump?
1: You know, as I was writing this book and you go back and live in certain moments of your life, and in that particular moment, I asked myself, like, how, how did I get through that? How, how did I? I think I, I was somewhat numb and maybe emotionally numb. Uh, I think I suppressed a lot of that. Uh, and I actually probably had to deal with that in the process of writing the book. Mm-hmm. And a lot of things I had to unpack that I didn't in real time 20 years ago. But I also think sports conditions you in a lot of ways to learn how to you know, overcome, you know, there's constant obstacles. There's constantly pushing yourself, testing your limits. I I like to say that's the reason why there's upsets. That's the reason why we come out of a huddle against Kentucky and think we're going to win and do the unthinkable. And so, you know, that's ingrained in you as an athlete and particularly at a high level. And so in the midst of all of that, I kept thinking, okay, I'm, I'm coming back. I'm going to do whatever it takes. It wasn't easy by any stretch of the imagination, and there were lonely moments, And but you kept looking ahead. You kept thinking, okay, what do I have to do? Do I have to eat right? I have to train. I have to, you know, read certain books, I uh, look for inspiration. You were grasping for anything and everything during those dark moments, but I, I kept looking ahead and kept believing that, that I'd get back, and I kept believing that I would make up for it on the back end. You know, it's funny. I used to say during all that, you know what? I'll play till I'm 40 because I'm not getting the the wear and tear those years I right, was sitting out. Right. So I'm going to make up for it then you and did. play till I was 40. And what's funny is my last year in the NBA with the Clippers, I turned 40. October 5th was my birthday. And I, I, I had my last injury that day. I tore my knee, was out for three months and really should have retired then. Uh, and so like the day I turned 40, my body just expired. So I'm saying I should have said 45 when I was going through all of that. <laughs> I could have played even longer. But, you know, I mean, I think, I think you just learn how to push through. You learn yeah. how to fight through. You learn, and, and and that's, in some ways, it's survival. I mean, you people who go through far worse trauma in their lives than what I went through, they just numb themselves and do what they have to do to get through, which is not always a healthy thing to do. But I think as an athlete, you just, okay, I'm going to push myself past my limits Ah, uh, pain is something you embrace, and you learn how to kind of get through it. and uh, And so, I think all of those years really helped prepare me for those four years of enduring those injury uh, obstacles.
0: What I was fascinated in the book is that you you your your Detroit years in your memory were a little foggy. I mean, those were that's kind of like where you came on the scene and became a superstar yet you don't have vivid memories from, from those years. I mean, obviously Detroit was not a winning team. uh, Right. So that colors it. You got to play on the Western. You played in the finals,
1: Western finals with uh, Phoenix. But why, why do you think that is? You know, it's a great question. I had a really hard time kind of racking my brain and trying to recall uh, those years. Uh, The Duke years. I mean, I I had to take things out. Like I could have just done a book on my four years at Duke. I remember things vividly. I, I think, Part of the struggle was that I had great individual success. I mean, I was all-stars. I was playing at an elite level. I was marketing. I had all these commercials. Everything yeah. was going well personally, but we weren't winning. And I took the blame and the responsibility personally for that. And it was almost like I didn't allow myself or give myself permission to enjoy it. Because ultimately the one thing that I desired, the one thing that I wanted to do was just to win. All the other stuff I didn't really care about. Mm -hmm. I wanted to win. And that's all we did in college. You know, my four years in college, I never cared about my numbers or or points or scoring or individual. It was the ultimate goal was to win. Yeah. And and so we didn't have that. And I was miserable and I blamed myself for that. So I didn't allow myself to enjoy. The moments, enjoy the good, and and going through the book and and talking to people, and even even after writing the book, I, I just I didn't allow myself to really have fun and appreciate the good moments yeah. uh, that I had and we had as a group, and uh, and so going through it in real time, like I just I wasn't happy, like I, I and it wasn't it wasn't sort of you know aimed towards the city or the organization. Sure. It was aimed towards me, like yeah. I, I was mad that I couldn't get it done yeah and, and that was painful for me, especially after you know having having great success yeah. in college and in high school beforehand so um so so the detroit years it was an interesting exercise trying to sort of tell that story uh and and what angle do I approach uh and what do I remember and uh because a lot of it was just like it was not good and 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 it was also I didn't appreciate how good I was because I didn't, I didn't feel like, Yeah. I didn't feel like, I felt like if I had won then, or because I wasn't winning, then I wasn't good enough. And, and that was a struggle and that was a tough, but tough it's, six you, years it, for me. It's
0: actually a tribute to your competitiveness that you did not look, okay, you had great individual stats, but you, because you were not part of a winning franchise It didn't feel good. And along those lines, and we we see Barkley and Shaq on the air, two of your cohorts, uh, broadcasters on the air, busting each other's chops. And a big theme all the time from Shaq to to Barkley is you never won a championship. You know, you never won a championship. And you're one of the greatest players. You certainly won Olympic gold, and you certainly won uh, two championships with Gook. So you, you won your championships, but you didn't win the NBA championship a NBA championship. Is that something that sticks in your craw or are you just, it, it is what it is and I, I'll rest on my laurels on my all my successes?
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, I've, I've sort of made peace with what happened, you know, in Detroit, made peace with myself, you know, um, and, and just the, the career in total. I mean, I think I think when you're young, I'm thinking about my legacy. You know, I'm thinking about, I want to be one of the great players of all time. and And that's why the losing... And not, or better at the, the not winning championships or not feeling like I'm getting closer to winning championships really pained me. And, you know, I like to say, as a professional athlete, as an elite professional athlete, you have to be somewhat narcissistic. <laughs> you know yes, what I mean? Yes, yes. You, you know, and, and, you do to so, be
0: successful in business also. I mean, that, no that, question. I, I, I think ego is a, mis, is a misunderstood
1: word because ego is a lot of positive that comes with ego also. Uh, and, and, no question. No, 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 no. It drives you. It's yeah. what drives you to be great. And, yes. and so I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but I think going through the injuries and going through that, and then coming back. I mean, essentially, I missed four years uh, of of playing, and came back. I wasn't the same. I had, you know, mental, physical, emotional scars. But there was just an appreciation for that second act. And you know, in some ways, I lost that edge. You know, I lost that sort of like every time I step on the court, I'm going to be the great. Like, I, I don't care if I'm going against Jordan or whomever. I'm the best player on the floor. Like you have that. You have to have that. You, yeah. We talked earlier about Christian and, and, and that athletic arrogance. And I went from that to all of a sudden years later, I'm just happy to be here. And so on one hand, that's a beautiful thing of an appreciation for the opportunity to play. But to be great, you you lose that edge, you yeah. know, and, and I kind of lost it as a result of the surgeries and the, the whole injury ordeal. But you know, I, I've made peace with it, and and I'm appreciative of of the totality of my career. Every, I mean, I experienced everything. I mean, I was at the highest of highs. I, I went through some really low, dark moments. You know, whether you know, unsure if I'd make it back, and then I came back. You know, and kind of reinvented myself. Uh, and then even my last year, I was hurt. I didn't play. And so I kind of felt and experienced everything you can experience during your career, and so yeah, uh, I'm grateful for that. And uh, and maybe it's a way for me to sort of deflect <laughs> from from not having one. Um, but but I'm at peace with that, and I'm okay with it.
0: So post NBA, you, you've had tremendous success in in various areas, and and something that I found fascinating. And mentioning Shaq, he's talked about this also. And I always preach this to young people: is that You basically said, okay, I wanna talk to people. I wanna kinda, you know, whether it's people from Duke that I have access to in different cities. And you learn that really successful people like talking about themselves, and that nine out of 10 times when you reach out to somebody, of course, you're a star athlete, so it's easier for you. But I found in most cases that if if a young person ever somehow got a hold of me and said, hey, Donnie, wow, you built a great agency, I'd love to pick your brains. that's a very natural human reaction, and, and most people will. And that was that's something that kind of really informed a lot of your success.
1: No, it, it is fascinating, and, and I think one of the things I mean, throughout my life, I mean, my, throughout my career, I was always looking ahead to the next act. What am I going to do when I'm done? Uh, and so I, you know, while I was playing, and certainly had the profile and the access, I, I would take the time to to meet with people and. Uh, and just pick their brain and, and learn about them and their life, their story, their journey, uh, their successes, their failures, uh, and with no sort of agenda, no, no no trying to do work or business necessarily, just wanting to to learn. And you know, I did. I mean, people I, I have found that people who have achieved a level of success, I get to a point where they want to share it, and they want to be resources and be helpful to others, and they want to share their experiences and and uh, and what they've done and accomplished, and look i I'm, I guess I've done that I mean I've done it in a way I've tried to be helpful impart wisdom, share my you know my my mistakes uh and, and, and all of it and so uh, I, I think that's that's important and I encourage you know young players today to to do that because you know retirement's going to creep up on you really soon and you know the money is absurd and, and and people should be financially set and secure, but there's so much more life to live yeah. if you if you're fortunate to play to your 40. Well, you know, when you're 40, you're just getting it started. And, and there's so many things you want to do and, uh, and and be exposed to and the, the sacrifice that was necessary to be great in your sport. Uh, now you may want to pursue other things and other interests. And and so there's a lot more life to live. You know, you don't want to stunt your development. You want to continue to grow as an individual and as a human being. And so that's what I tried to do. That's what I'm still trying to do. and And but I'm enjoying this part of my life. Television and business, and, you know, working in around sports ownership, like it's just, I've been able to sort of mold this life that I'm doing, and stay around the game, do real estate, do business, serve on some corporate boards. Uh, it's really edifying, like stimulating. I, 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 if I knew retirement was this much fun, I would have done it sooner. Because <laughs> I'm, <laughs> well, because you're anything but
0: retired. I want to just take it ten thousand feet up a little bit. You know, we're living through some really rough times right now, uh, the state of the country politically, uh, uh as you watch these January six hearings, it's, it's almost, can't even believe it. You know, it's just that what do you, and it, we, we don't, I don't think we hear enough from athletes today taking stands on some of the things that are going, I mean, just Roe v. Wade going backwards and a lot of the things that are happening that it just, you kind of shake your head and, and go, it's not supposed to be going in this direction. And I'm just wondering what you always saw your place when it came to issues. You know, we just, as we're recording this, uh, the great Bill Russell passed away, and Bill was one of the early athletes that took stands on issues, particularly issues as it related to African Americans. And I'm just curious, your take on... What you think an athlete's role is? I mean, I guess, I guess it's kind of a dumb question because every it's a, such an individual choice. I'm just—I guess your point of view of where where you not where you come out on specific issues, but what you what you think your obligation is as a, as a public figure and as as a role model and as kind of a uh, as a as a famous dude in our society.
1: Well, you know, I think I think athletes are just like anyone. They pay taxes, yeah. and in and, and a lot of cases, they pay a lot of taxes, and and so you just and they vote, and we vote, and so you have a right. Uh, to speak your mind and whatever that might be. And there have been people who, you know, as we know, who've criticized that, who don't like the idea of athletes being outspoken. Bill Russell, uh, that generation, what they endured, the stances they took, there's just a great appreciation. Every time I I would see Mr. Russell, I would go and bow down and kiss his ring and just, you know, honor, respect him and thank him for all that he had done. My generation in the 90s, you know, we didn't, it's an interesting time like we didn't there wasn't didn't,
0: yeah, yeah there were in the 90s we, as you said that out loud i'm thinking there didn't seem to be a real moral imperative about any particular issue it was a weird kind of gliding time if you will it wasn't the 60s it wasn't the 70s it wasn't the, you know the early 2000 it was a, a weird decade
1: And it it felt like there was a a feeling of of progress, you know, like we were moving forward as a country uh, in some respects. I I also think, you know, I look at today's generation of athletes, they get it and they are comfortable speaking out, using their platform. I also think social media and the digital age that we're in plays a role in that because now there's the access to information, and so if something, if I were playing in Detroit in the 90s and something happened in Toledo, Ohio, it's not guaranteed that I'm going to know about it or it's going to be harder for me to find or learn about what happened. Now everything happens. You, you can share and exchange information. You're more aware. And then you have a generation of people, uh, and this is just in general, not just athletes, but social media, everybody's on. Everybody now you know, has a direct uh, line yeah. to their to to the world, you know. it Used to be, you had to write an op-ed or you had to sit down for an interview. Yeah, you just pick um, up your phone now. Yeah, now you pick up your phone and yeah. you can say whatever. And so it's 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 empowered people and particularly athletes. So this generation on a number of issues, uh, I think, are, are more than willing and feel comfortable speaking out. And I think there's there are those who who are uncomfortable with athletes doing that. But I think, I think it's a, a, a beautiful thing. Uh, we're, we're all taxpayers. Yeah. You know, we're American citizens and we earn it's that a, right. It's a great just, way you know, of putting to, it.
0: It's a great way of putting to do it. it.
1: All right, yeah. final question. You've been
0: really generous with your time and I ask everybody this question because the whole premise of this podcast is that kind of everybody and everything today is a brand. So what's the Grand Hill brand?
1: <laughs> you know, it's funny. I'll say this. And I think I put it in the book. Before my rookie year, my handler said, you have an opportunity to be a brand and i didn't quite understand what that meant now i knew what a brand was sure but i didn't i didn't equate a brand to being a, an individual and you know, I, I thought mcdonald's and nike of I course, mean, those yeah, were brands yeah. and uh and so now everybody as you said thinks of themselves or is is worried about you know or, or you know i i think everyone is aware that they're or, or you know that they're a brand um so anyway to answer your question you know I would hope that it's 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 substance, it's it's integrity, it's excellence, um, it's intelligence, not perfection because none of us are. But those are things that I've tried to live by, I've I've tried to embody, and, and I'm hopeful that that's what resonates with with those out there. And um, you know, I, I don't always get it right, I don't always make the right decision, but I think it comes from a pure place, and I've tried to live my life, you know, adhering to those principles. So. Uh, I don't know if that is consistent with what you think about the brand. Of, I think it's right on. I think it's right on.
0: That's I, what I've th- tried to do. I think you are one of those transcendent athletes that you're you're you just beyond your excellence at your craft. You always exuded a decent humanity. It was just something like mm. we I, you, look when you, you're in it, when you're watching guys on TV and you watch it like you, you know them, but you don't know them, of course. But something about you would always. Translated to a tremendous place of integrity and decency, and I, I think that that's followed you throughout your your career and throughout your stardom. So I want to thank you. It's been fifteen years since we chatted. Let's make sure it doesn't happen another fifteen because we're getting too fucking old, my friend. You know, the book is the book is game and autobiography. It's a great read. You got another month to the summer. I cha- I, I I can't say it enough to anybody. Go out get it. It's it's going to be worth your read. It really is. Thank you, my friend.
1: Thank you, Donnie. And thank you for those kind words as well. I appreciate you. Thank
0: you. You, you stay well to you and your family. Okay.
1: All right. You too. Thank you.
0: Hope you enjoyed listening to On Brand uh, with Donny Deutsch. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe anywhere you get podcasts. And also you can watch on YouTube, download our videos, and also subscribe and also give us your reviews there. Have a great week. We'll see you next week on On Brand. Hi, this is Jim Jeffries. I have a podcast out called I Don't Know About That. Each episode is a different subject. We bring an expert on and I say everything I think I know about that subject and then they correct me. Join in, listen to the podcast, you'll have a laugh and you might learn something. Follow, rate and review, I Don't Know About That with Jim Jeffries. Now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. You can also catch video releases each week on YouTube.